Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. It is uh, a little cloudy, a little sunny here in Kamloops. Lots of snow on the ground. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by Global BC's Richard Sussman, BC Today's Shannon Waters, and the Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw. Good morning, all. Good morning, Shane. <laughs> all right. Uh, by the way, special welcome to Shannon and Richard. That's their first show of the year, so good to hear your voices. Uh, guys, we got a lot to talk about today, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, a lot happening in the BC Hydro front. I know ICBC's gotten a lot of media limelight over its fiscal woes. Uh, we will be talking about ICBC in just a little bit. But BC Hydro with a bit of a double whammy this week. Uh, starting off with the Zapped report, which came out on Thursday night, which paints a picture of some pretty staggering fiscal mismanagement to the tune of over $16 billion. In a nutshell, Hydro buying the wrong kind of energy at insane prices and way too much of it. Uh, Rob, uh, decipher for this mess for me what what in the world happened at hydro decipher the mess yeah well I, if you wanted to boil this all down essentially uh, you could point the finger back to gordon campbell who as premier back in the early 2000s kind of uh, tied hydro's hands behind its back and said not only can you not build your own new power except for site c you're gonna have to go buy it from private producers and Eventually, he made Hydro uh, try to reach this energy self-sufficiency target. And what the report points out is that Hydro scrambled. It, it started signing contracts all over the place at huge rates because at the time there was supposed to be an energy shortage that turned out not to be true. And so we have these you know, ironclad contracts that go on and on and on for decades at rates that Hydro can't get out of. And it's costing a ton of money. Now, they're, they're, it's a political report in some ways. I mean, the NDP loves this report because it gives them this magic number of $200 a year on your hydro bill that you shouldn't be paying because of the screw-ups of the Liberal government, which is great politics for them. But it is hard to argue against the idea that the Liberals didn't just micromanage hydro into the ground, not only on this, but on the way they melted it by pushing all Hydro's costs into deferral accounts, so it came up with just the right formula to give government its dividend back. And you can just, I mean, you can look at it and realize that it was micromanaged to death. I'll just add one more thing, though. Hydro is responsible for what I would charitably describe as many years of completely, totally, utterly wrong forecasts for electricity uh, demand. And I don't know how many tech briefings I sat through with charts and pie graphs telling us we were on the verge of a brownout and we need site c and oh my god we need this power and now we get a power surplus in the, in the latest technical briefing we have more power shane than we need we don't need any more we've got too much we got to get rid of it so hydro needs to share some blame here too for being utterly abysmal at, at being able to predict what it needs and how to communicate that with government as well well, good thing we're not building another super dam in that case. Uh, Richard, ironclad, IP, uh, uh, ironclad IPP contract, some of them 60 years long. Uh, Energy Minister Michelle Mongal is saying, listen, these things are, are pretty tightly wound up in legalese, uh, pretty tricky to get out of them. Uh, what do we do there if we're overpaying by so much and it's all costing us? Yeah, I guess you try to find savings elsewhere, Shane. And just to that point that you made, you took a, a good shot there at the Site C Dam. And a lot of that has to do now, the justification is we're going to try to electrify everything. We'll find out in the budget next week how the provincial government is going to create these incentives for people to buy into this new plan. But a lot of this has to rely on the electrification of the province and what Site C produces. 
I think there should be some serious questions about how much of that power we actually need, but I think the government is using that as a bit of a support for justification of building. And also, you know, the NDP made it clear we were past the point of no return. Uh, there was no you know, financial reason for them to stop it. It would have cost far too much money. And then, you know, to the other point you were making, these contracts are ironclad. I think the bottom line on hydro is what people want to know is everybody in this province has to pay their electricity bill. And they want to pay as little as possible. And they want to ensure that the government is managing it in a way that keeps those rates down. And it's hard to decipher all these decisions being made, contracts that are being signed on how to do that. So, you know, we heard a few new policy shifts from the government yesterday. Nothing huge. We know the rates are going up by a little bit more than 8% over a five-year period. That's better than projected. It's better than the Liberals did. Uh, and we are also finding out that they're going to give more responsibility to the BC Utilities Commission, which I think for most people doesn't really matter because it's just an overseeing body. But why it's important is because it takes the politics in some extent out of the decision-making around purchasing and rate-fixing. And the BCUC you know, is an overseeing body that does provide, and they did send a big blow to the NDP when they promised in the last election they were going to freeze rates. Yeah. The UC said, well, you can't do that. Um, the UC having more power, I think, is a good policy decision so people can trust that politics won't be meddling with decisions at Hydro. Yeah, fair enough. We'll dive a little bit more into the BCU thing in half a second, but Shannon, let's bring you in on this. Michelle Mungal writing off $1.1 billion sitting in that rate-smoothing account, ending the practice, which will have some impact, I imagine, on uh, the future of those deferral accounts. But uh, it's sold as keeping rates down. But I can't imagine eating a billion dollars is very good for taxpayers either. Way the minister was selling it was basically that the government is going to take this hit. They're paying 1.1 billion to get rid of this regulatory account, pay it down, and that's something then that ratepayers won't be expected to do over the next five years. Now that doesn't mean that hydro rates won't be going up. They are going up, as Richard pointed out, by hopefully less than what the Liberals had proposed. Even the rates that the government is saying we're going to be paying, that little over 8% over the next five years, that still has to go to the BC Utilities Commission to be approved. Um, but basically what Mungal said about this payment is that, you know, it's going to put Hydro back on firm uh, financial footing and it's a good use of government money that way. Now, the government also paid off some hydro debt back in the summer, another $950 million. So they've put about $2 billion into the utility uh, in just the past six months. Uh, so that's a big that's a big chunk of change. Uh, and we're waiting on the budget for more details about clean BC. So um, the government's throwing a lot of money both at BC Hydro. We've seen issues at ICBC. So... I mean, they've got a lot on their plate at this point in time, and sometimes it's just crazy thinking about the numbers that are involved in mm. some of these decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, on BCUC, Rob, uh, two-year transition period, uh, restoring full BC oversight to BC Hydro. Okay, uh, nothing wrong with that move. Uh, why two years, and should this be a move where politics is removed completely from this utility, where it is BCUC and Hydro's brass, and that's it? Sure, yeah, that'd be great, but that's not going to happen. I mean, you know, <laughs> the Utilities Commission is this this kind of siren song, you know, on the rocky shore where everyone gets lured close to it, and then they find themselves scuttled on the rocks because politicians, I mean, the NDP love the idea of saying we're going to take politics out of it. 
until rates start going through the roof. And then they intervene and say, look, you know, the Utilities Commission, a bunch of bureaucrats, they're not elected to make the tough decisions. That's what politicians are elected for. And that's what Bill Bennett, as Energy Minister, used to say. And that was the liberal rationale for cutting out the BC Utilities Commission is because when they return astronomical rates and say that hydro needs this money, people light their hair on fire. And, I, you know, I know that the government says that they're going to restore the full independence of the BCUC and Michelle Mangal told us they will, they will only override the BCUC with cabinet orders in very rare circumstances. But it, hydro is a mess and it still has billions, I think, what, three, almost four billion dollars left in its deferral account? Five and a half. But it has massive, you know, capital plans that still need to be upgraded even though some projects are being deferred now, which is a whole separate issue. We don't entirely know what has been deferred as part of government's announcement yesterday but in the 1990s the NDP kept rates low by deferring maintenance and deferring projects that then caught up on the system which forced hydro to spend billions which is partly the reason why we are where we are today so look great politics it was a big promise of John Horgan to put the BCUC back in charge they need a couple years because of the way that the rates are applied for and the fact that the BCUC Hasn't, hasn't been doing that this job for quite a while and needs to staff up, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm too cynical, Shane, but I just can't imagine when you are a government that ran on a populist agenda of keeping life affordable for families, and I'm not talking about Christy Clark, I'm talking about John Horgan, you eventually intervene to keep rates affordable for families, and you don't turn it all over to the BCUC, and you don't let the bureaucrats who never have to run for re-election jam your rates through the roof. And I have a hard time believing the NDP will resist the urge to fiddle with the BCUC once they... <laughs> by the way, uh, Rob... Too uh, cynical. I'm too cynical. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, siren song and scuttled on the shores, I'm telling you right now, folks, <laughs> Rob Shaw metaphors are flat out the best metaphors ever. I've never went actually worked, but... I'm still laughing about your waterboarding stuff from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Richard, uh, all of this, uh, you know, everything everybody said so far uh, points to one thing, uh, that we're far from over when it concerns BC Hydro and the fiscal woes there. I think a much less cynical person than Rob would say that government <laughs> could put in effective policies over the next few years that would ensure that rates would stay low. I think that's why we elect governments, is to put in good policies, make good decisions. Those good decisions lead to good outcomes to the public. You know, is hydro in far too great a mess for the government to actually be able to manage that? Do we trust this government actually has good ideas to figure out a way to keep rates low at hydro? I don't know the answers to that, but I think, you know, we are cynical in a sense that we believe governments before elections come in and tinker with these utilities to have rate cuts or rate freezes so it looks great on the doorsteps during a campaign. But if the NDP does make good decisions and this, you know, government does go to term and we have an election in the fall of 2021, they have time here to make good policy decisions that could lead to ensuring those rates stay as they have forecast them. And that would be honoring a commitment, I think, to the public. So obviously this is one of those wait and see moments, but there's a lot on their plate in terms of actually making good, tangible decisions as they try to clean up this mess. Last word to you, Shannon. I'm still sort of in the dark and why it takes two years to transition BCUC to full oversight, although the timing's interesting. It would make it right around election time, I assume. 
Yeah, I mean, the way the government has started... Pre- has sort of presented this and Rob kind of pointed out, you know, staffing issues and the way that um, that rates are presented to the BCUC and the schedule for that factors in. There's legislation that's coming that's going to change the the relationship that BCUC has with BC Hydro and get rid of some of the directives that the Liberals put in about the BCUC and the way it handles Hydro. Um, I think the other thing here is that we've got a second phase of this review coming. This is part one, and it looks at sort of the near term. I believe the focus was sort of through 2024. The second phase goes a lot further. That's looking at 2050. That's looking past the point where they're forecasting an energy surplus and looking at, you know, what are we going to need to do to continue to be able to have cheap, plentiful, and hopefully clean power going into 2050? So I imagine that sort of factors into the decision about uh, returning BCUC's oversight as well, possibly looking to the longer term and seeing if the government is, is seeing how things are going to need to be handled later on. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. We'll move from one troubled crown corporation to another. Uh, we're talking to Rob Shaw, we're talking to Shannon Waters, and we're talking to Richard Zussman. More with them after this quick break. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Global BC's Richard Sussman, the Vancouver Suns, Rob Shaw, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Uh, we did talk about hydro in the last segment. We're moving to ICBC this time earlier in the week. We had some changes made there. David E.B. putting a cap on expert witnesses. If you go to court and challenge your crash, uh, now you can only bring a certain amount with you as opposed to what happened before. This is supposed to figure out somehow in about $400 million in cost savings for a crown corporation that is heading for a deficit of $1.18 billion dollars but all is not well the trial lawyers are declaring war on this so the big question shannon is will these changes finally turn this ship around well that's the hope i mean evie himself admitted that the impact that these changes are going to have kind of depends on the bench and the bar um if lawyers uh keep bringing can you so you're restricted to using a certain number of experts depending on sort of the scale of the claim that you're dealing with, but you can apply to the court to be able to use more experts and argue that your claim that your client needs these experts to be able to make their case. So if lawyers kind of look at this move at ICBC and just say, okay, well, we're just going to have to make the applications to the courts, um, that could end up increasing the time that it takes to resolve claims, which tends to push costs up. And if judges decide that, yes, they're going to grant these applications, then that might not have that much of an impact on the number of experts that are getting used in claims cases, and we may not end up seeing the savings that the Attorney General is hoping for here. All right. So then, Rob, uh, if the ship doesn't get turned around, I know when, when David Eby was asked this week, hey, listen, if these changes don't work, if they don't provide a solution, we don't start seeing something going the other way as far as 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 far as ICBC's finances, uh, will you tackle the no-fault thing? And he didn't exactly close that door, kind of saying, well, we'll have to see how it happens. Is that pretty significant or no? Yeah, I think actually they kind of opened the door a little bit on it because there was a reference in the throne speech, too, to... Um, you know, look, I, we need to keep ICBC rates low, and if we can't, we're willing to do what is necessary to make that happen. And 
there was a reference in the uh, expert witness report press conference too that BC is going to be looking how other provinces handle uh, you know their insurance corporations and no fault is certainly one way to do it uh, that used to be when you would ask the attorney general about that idea he would say nope not on the table not part of what we're looking at we can fix the system he's still saying we can fix the system hopefully but he's adding on and if we can't then we're willing to do whatever is necessary so i think it's if it's not back on the table it's kind of like approaching the corner of the table and maybe sliding onto the corner of the table and, you know, the New Democrats are serious about trying to fix ICBC, and no fault was an idea they had in the 90s. Um, and it, the trial lawyers rose up and, and uh, slapped them down on it, and they had to back away from it. So it's not inconceivable that we see the return on that. The trial lawyers have said um, they plan on challenging this in courts, and they're preparing their arguments. I mean, they have a vested interest. Those are the personal injury lawyers that you see on television, late-night infomercials advertising to get you the best payment out of ICBC. And then I guess also ICBC is a lot to blame for this too because of the litigious way that they have forced people to lawyer up over the years to to navigate the labyrinth of corridors and blocks in their way to get a settlement. So I think it's almost on the table. And if we don't, I mean, everything hinges on April when these caps come into place. If we don't see the ship at ICBC righted, uh, after April, if the Attorney General has to stand up and give us quarterly updates where ICBC is sinking further into the mud, then I bet you we start having that uh, conversation very quickly. I think every reporter in the province is at a time where they've gone to court or been assigned to court to go through the writ pile to find stories. And I can tell you for those that haven't, uh, a good chunk, half or more, every single day is ICBC cases. Uh, the big the big question out of this whole ICBC mess, Richard, and it was one that was directed to Mr. Eby several times, considering the, the numbers uh, of the fiscal situation sitting on the table was, is the Crown Corporation insolvent or not? Now, David Eby said, no, no, we're, 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 we're not insolvent. But uh, is it in bad shape or not? Yeah, this is something that's come up from Rick McCandless, who's an expert that looks into this, and he communicates with the media about his findings. He writes papers. He's a former public servant here, and he believes it's insolvent. I think Rob hit it when he said, you know, you have to wait till the changes come in in April. So those changes are on caps uh, to soft tissue injury claims as well as concussions and others. There's a $5,500 cap on those claims. Uh, that promise, Evie says, will save a billion dollars a year. So if those changes come into effect and we don't see the changes happen immediately in terms of the savings on expert reports as well as the caps, then that's when we have to see whether ICBC is in this true financial mess. Because if the government can find $1.4 billion in savings a year, all of a sudden the public insurer is making more money. And, you know, back to the lawyer's point, I think, you know, one of the few groups in this province who is less popular than ICBC are lawyers. So it's an easy fight for the government to make saying, look, these lawyers, as Rob mentioned, you know, are the ones you see advertising on television. They are out for themselves. Their self-interest depend on milking the ICBC system. I've spoken to lots of lawyers. What they'll tell me is they... Their job is to look out for the best interests of their clients, and they are doing it within the rules in front of them. And that means expert reports. That's what it's going to take. And these lawyers are very frustrated with this, and they're just trying to get the best for their clients. I think the bottom line is all British Columbians want to pay less for their car insurance, and they need to figure out a way to do it. And if that's 
taking money out of the pockets of lawyers. I think British Columbians are okay with that if it means they pay less to drive. Lawyers, please direct all your calls and lawsuits to Richard Zussman at Global BC. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break here at Inside Politics, and we'll continue our conversation with Rob, Richard, and Shannon on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome back. Inside. <laughs> nice little flub there. Uh, welcome back. The joys of live radio. Uh, we're talking to Rob Shaw, Richard Zussman, and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, the ledge resumed sitting, as we all know, earlier this week with the throne speech, etc. As uh, as the MLAs got to bickering, um, the big topic so far this week has been ride-sharing. And, uh, Richard, I can't think of a worse argument to pick than where I and the person I'm arguing with both look like fools over the subject matter. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right about that. It People have short memories. I think it's what the Liberals are hoping for. You know, as you mentioned, they weren't able to deliver on ride-sharing when they were in government. One of the big promises for 2017 was they had this piece of legislation that would finally make it happen, but you had to get them back in office, and that didn't happen. And now, you know, ride-sharing is coming by the end of this year. But is it? But I have a hard time <laughs> believing you know, what that ride-sharing is going to look like because we've heard from Uber and Lyft. They have concerns they can't operate under the new rules. So... You know, it's one of those things I pay a lot of attention to, Shane. I think everybody has, has really, really done poorly on this issue. The Green Card is the only one. But when they've had chances to, you know, push amendments through and force the government's hand, they haven't been able to deliver on that either. So, you know, we need to know rules around uh, zones, where you can drop off. This is especially important in the Metro Vancouver. How many cars are on the road? Can they have flexible pricing? I think most important for the big company is the license class. You know, Uber and Lyft can't operate if they're going to require uh, every single driver to have this additional license. They're, you know, drivers aren't going to go wait in line at ICBC where they don't have enough people to process the licenses. They're not going to put the money down up front. They're not going to do the courses required. So it's, it's going to prohibit the model of ride-sharing that everyone has experienced outside of British Columbia from actually coming to BC if they're insistent that it must be a Class 4 license. And Shannon, one of the things that kind of came out of the ride-sharing was this allegation against Ravi Kalon, uh, whose dad apparently owns a taxi license. He sits on the ride-sharing legislative committee that he may or may not be in conflict of interest. Is, is this a legitimate probe or is this in politics on behalf of the Liberals? Have we lost Shannon? All right, maybe I'll throw that one to you then, Rob. Well, I mean, I think the real problem is that Ravi Kalan didn't appear to disclose this, you know, perceived conflict uh, to the right people. And his minister, Claire Trevena, got ambushed in the House on the first day of question period, didn't know what was being asked of her by the Liberals, which is the worst case scenario for a cabinet minister, just to get out of left field hammered on something they didn't know. And that is his real problem here. Is had, I think had he been up front at the beginning that uh, his father has owned a taxi license for, you know, like 30 years, um, possibly other extended members of his family, his uncle or whatnot, possibly that would have been fine. But to not, you know, kind of disclose it in the right way, and it's not, it wasn't a secret, people knew, but it caught the government off guard, it made them look bad. Premier John Horgan expended a ton of political capital to backstop uh, Ravi in the House the other day saying, crafting some rather far-fetched arguments about 
how small business liberals are opposed to small business owners uh, <laughs> and all sorts of political maneuvering to try and uh, make it look like Ravi wasn't actually in a conflict. But he has gone to the conflict commissioner. Uh, he said he'll uh, agree to the outcome of that. Probably should have happened at the beginning. Uh, now it's a problem for the NDP, and it, it was an embarrassment for them. A direct hit by the Liberals in the first week of uh, the House, and an embarrassment. I'm, you know, the other argument is that this committee that he's on is uh, the first round of work that the committee did on ride ailing produced a bunch of recommendations that the NDP stuffed into a drawer and didn't listen to. Um, and this version of the committee is supposed to be more important because it's helping craft some of the regulations that government might use in this legislation. So maybe, I guess, but um, it, was, it was a mess and it was an avoidable, self-inflicted uh, mess on, on the NDP government this week. Okay. Uh, do we have Shannon on the line or no? Shannon, are you there? No, it appears we've lost Shannon, so we'll just have to go and finish Richard off. Richard can just do the, the, the <laughs> yeah. questions in a row. <laughs> okay, uh, one of the other well, weird aspects. The one in the gallery that does the best impressions, though, so I'm curious about where his Shannon impression is. <laughs> uh, one of the other weird things was this uh, throne speech vote, uh, where the Speaker allowed uh, the doors to be open for 10 minutes. We're getting into some you know, hardcore legislature points of order here, but um, what I was intrigued by, uh, Mr. Pleck has sold it as sort of no harm, no foul the next day, and it things kind of went past the point where the rules allow for. But uh, when I looked at this issue, my first thought was, is this situation between him and the Liberals spiraling out of control, or was this a legitimate mistake? Richard? Yes, it is spiraling out of control. The whole legislature felt like it was spiraling out of control this week. There's a lot, a lot of tension between the two sides and a lot of animosity. And part of this is games being played. And, you know, we ultimately ended up with this throne speech vote because the NDP says that the Liberals uh, had four speakers ready to go um, and the Liberals pulled the plug before they got their speakers up there in order to trigger this vote. And it was the NDP's fault for not having somebody in the chamber ready to stand up and speak about the throne speech. You know, one of the follow-ups of this is the throne speech is often used as this you know, document that can be debated forever because members can stand up and basically talk about anything. And you can kill a lot of clock doing that and help the sort of legislative calendar forward. The NDP has lost that option now because the throne speech has passed and we all move on. It also begs the question about how tenuous the government is that, you know, if they're disorganized, maybe they miss a vote and all of a sudden the government crumbles. I, I think we're a long, long ways away from that. But that idea does creep into the heads, and there was a lot of really mad NDPers following that screw-up uh, that were just sort of questioning, how does this happen, and you know, what, how could we prevent it from happening when it really matters? Yeah, Rob, is this thing getting toxic? Because I, I just don't know. I mean, uh, Mr. Plekis is behind his, of course, spending report. There's a lot of allegations made there. He kind of went from zero to hero. But I still see a lot of bad blood at the legislature, and I just wonder how deeply it's seeping into how that place operates. Yeah, certainly the Liberals are upset that the standing orders of the House only allow MLAs five minutes to get to the chamber for a vote. And in the past, it's been enforced quite uh, vigorously. You know, my colleague Vaughn Palmer wrote about how Glenn Clark uh, missed a vote in the 1990s because he was scrambling to get there and it did. he missed a five-minute window and the sergeant-at-arms locks the door. And that's the rule of the House. You have five minutes to get there. Plekis gave them ten. And he says it would not have changed the outcome of the vote, but the Liberals feel like he's allowing the rules to be bent for the benefit of the NDP, who, you know, clearly are his friends. 
and he despises the liberals and they despise him. So that is a, another tension and another uh, you know wedge between the parties that are supposed to be working together on behalf of you and I and everyone else here to manage the building. And politics aside, you know, there is supposed to be a, a brief, tiny, little island of nonpartisan oasis, theoretically, that parties can get together and manage the building on. And it doesn't exist. It's been swamped by the turmoil and the waves that have been caused by the, the Daryl Plekis report. And another tension this week was the idea when uh, Speaker Plekis went on CTV News and said, you know, there's going to be people, MLA is going to jail and staff yeah. going to jail as a result of his probes. And that, you could you could see that ticked off Premier John Horgan. Yep. And he came out with some uh, counterpoints to both the Speaker and his Chief of Staff, Alan Mullen, that you could summarize in one word, was basically shut up uh, and uh, let people do the investigation. And because it passed a cloud on this place for the whole, all the MLAs are wondering what the heck is going on now. And uh, so it's, it, it, is a, it is a very tense environment. My colleague Les Lane at the Times Colonist wrote that there's a lot of fear uh, in the building right now of what, what the Speaker's doing and what's going on and what scores he's trying to settle and what he's investigating and the rules he's going to bend. And I think that that vote only added to some of the fear that's uh, reverberating down the hallways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, but I do want to fire this out real quick because uh, we have the provincial budget coming on Tuesday. I know I have some things sort of Kamloops-specific I'm looking for. One of my bigger items province-wide is uh, cannabis revenues and how that'll all shake out. But uh, first to you, Richard, what are you watching for in the provincial budget? And you're going to be here, which is exciting. We're all excited to see you. <laughs> and uh, I also thought shut up was two words, so thanks for that, Rob. <laughs> well, let me check my CP captain style, but yeah, <laughs> you are the broadcast journalist. I defer to you. <laughs> so I'm looking for, you know, two things, obviously. Poverty reduction strategy. Uh, where is the money? Will the government finally honor this commitment that advocates have been calling for to peg uh, disability and welfare rates uh, to inflation going forward. So there's some sustainability there. Uh, and the other one is, you know, the incentive programs around Green BC. You know, how much are these programs going to be? And is it enough to encourage British Columbians to buy into this program? Uh, final word to you, Rob. Yeah, it's a show-me-the-money budget because uh, all the tax maneuvers the NAP promised in the election, taxing the wealthy, taxing the corporations, carbon tax increase, those are done. And so where are they going to get the money if they want to continue their ambitious spending? We'll be looking for revenue sources to kind of fund whatever, all, all the things that Richard just listed off there. Perfect. Guys, always a pleasure. And our apologies to Shannon, who we lost in the last segment uh, on the phone lines. Uh, but it was good to hear her voice earlier on. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah, we'll see you down here, Shane. Drive safely on the Coquihalla. I'm not sure if you're aware. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's Richard Zussman from Global BC, Rob Shaw from Vancouver Sun, and Shannon Waters from BC Today. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to be joined by BC's Energy Minister, Michelle Mungal. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to the show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by this province's Energy and Mines Minister, Michelle Mungal. Good morning, Michelle. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's good to have you on. How's little Xavier doing, by the way? Uh, he's doing great. He's uh, with me right now, just in his jolly jumper. And if uh, you can <laughs> see how much air this kid gets. Oh, I know, right? It's dangerous. you got to have tall doorways. 
<laughs> okay, let's get down to business. You've had a busy week, uh, and a lot is unfolded on the BC Hydro front, um, and not the least of which is the ZAP report. It looks like we bought way too much energy. We paid way too much for it, about $16 billion coming back to taxpayers on that. Not a good situation. Uh, the first question to you is, over the years, how did BC Hydro forecasting get this so wrong? We went from, oh, my God, we need energy. Here's how we're going to grab it from every which way to we have way too much. What happened there? Well, in a nutshell, the BC Liberals told the BC Utilities Commission that they could not have their job of having independent oversight of BC Hydro. Had the BC Utilities Commission been able to do their job, they would have pointed out that the BC Liberals were telling BC Hydro to manufacture a false demand. So basically in the load forecasting formulas, they changed some of the variables that essentially for that manufactured this demand. BC Hydro told the BC Liberal government at the time, hey, this is not up. This is uh, not the way how we're supposed to be doing things. BC Liberal said, tough cookies, BC Hydro, this is what you have to do. And on top of our political interference with this Crown Corporation, BC Liberal said, BCUC, you're not allowed to have any oversight at all. So that's how we got into the situation where... um, the forecasting for power needs is simply false. Okay. Um, you made a lot of changes, or a lot of changes are coming to BC Hydro. Let's kind of walk through some of them. Number one, the rate smoothing account uh, is effectively dead. We've written down the $1.1 billion balance there. Uh, according to uh, what you said yesterday, this will help limit future rate hikes. Great, but eating $1.1 billion can't be good for taxpayers either. And, and furthermore, how does this affect the future of those deferral accounts that have billions of dollars in them? What's important here is that uh, those deferral accounts, which went from $200 million in 2001 and over the 16 years of the BC Liberal government, went up to $5 billion. The Auditor General had been warning for years that this was not good accounting and this was going to have some negative financial consequences in the long term for the public's crown corporation, BC Hydro. And so we came in and we're looking, we're doing a review and we're looking for ways that we can reduce those rate hikes for British Columbians. And also make BC Hydro that crown jewel, that financial stability that it needs to be for British Columbians. And so this $1.1 billion write-down, I would say that this is a good investment in making sure that our crown jewel, our crown corporation that everybody owns is in good financial health going forward. One of the other changes is the standing offer program has been suspended immediately. Uh, That closes the door in IPPs, essentially. But I'm concerned on one front. What does this mean for First Nations, especially in remote and rural communities, where that independent power project is an economic driver? Were they consulted with? uh, What is going on in that front? That's a great question. And for a lot of First Nations, uh, private power has been an economic development opportunity. Unfortunately, the vast majority of uh, the profits from those projects left the province, 80%. In fact, they were not going first and foremost to First Nations communities. We want to move forward on a program where we see the benefits go first and foremost to Indigenous nations in this province. So we're going to be working with them on that. uh, I've already started our consultation and we're going to be moving forward in the future with them uh, on how we can develop develop a program that's going to work best for them first and foremost. Okay. Now, if we're closing the door on these independent power projects and we're awash in electricity and we've got all these problems, why are we building Site C? 
Well, as uh, we said in the past, that this was not the project that we would have started. It's a project that the BC Liberals started, and uh, they made it very difficult. Uh, well, basically, they, they got it to a point of no return, as Christy Clark said she would, and that didn't necessarily was the case in uh, in terms of the, the cement pouring and so on, but it was definitely in the financial case. And you'll remember that when we went forward, uh, it was because it would have a $4 billion hole in the province's uh, 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 coffers, and that meant we wouldn't be able to move forward with uh, universal child care, for example. And so uh, that was our go forward. Um, noting the needs for the future and where things are going, uh, Site C also provides uh, what's called firming because it has a reservoir. So if you recall, a lot of these IPPs uh, came online uh, at the wrong time of year during spring freshet when we didn't need the power, or there were what's called intermittent power. They um, only produce power when it's sunny or when it's windy. And so we need power to come online when we demand it, whether it's sunny or windy or, or spring or fall or whatever. And so Site C's reservoir provides that ability to firm up power and make sure that we have power when we need it. Now, the B.C. Liberals are firing back over what we've learned over the last few days. I note in a release, uh, uh, Liberal MLA Greg Kylor presents Shushwap uh, near to our area here said, and I quote from the release, the cost of IPP energy is approximately $100 per megawatt hour because clean energy is simply more expensive. How do you respond to that? Clean energy doesn't have to be more expensive. In fact, uh, BC Hydro's heritage assets produces energy at far below $100 per megawatt hour. Uh, it's around the $35 mark. And so that that simply uh, is is some of the false accounting that they forced on BC Hydro uh, several years ago. So we don't need any more of that. And we certainly don't need more politics interfering with BC Hydro the way the Liberals did. And that's why we need to re-empower the BC Utilities Commission. And that was part of our plan release yesterday as well. And the big question is, with all the changes that, that are coming and with what we've learned in the last 48 hours about BC Hydro, uh, how does this all uh, impact dovetail with the Clean BC program, which I know it relies heavily on electrification? Uh, that's, that's correct. And there's no doubt about it. We know that going forward in the future, starting around 2030, 2030 uh, 2035, in that time range we're forecasting, uh, that Site C power will be online and it'll be heavily used. And we're also going to start needing more power in the future, especially uh, as we look to ensure all new cars sold by 2040 are electric or zero emissions vehicles. How we're going to achieve that, though, is part of our phase two review of BC Hydro. And uh, that's going to be started this spring. Okay, and last question to you. Uh, this is a phase one review. Uh, we've learned quite a lot about BC Hydro, a whole bunch of it not good. Uh, what does phase two look like? Phase two is all about positioning BC Hydro for that future demand, as I said. Um, one of the issues with the IPPs was that this was private power, money fleeing the province and not benefiting British Columbians for first and foremost, as I said. So looking forward, we need to make sure that we're betting fit in British Columbians, first and foremost, that BC Hydro is in good financial shape and it's being able to generate clean energy for the future.
Okay. Michelle, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, congratulations to Xavier for having self-control over the last nine minutes. I know that couldn't have been easy. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> there we go. That's Michelle Mungal, this province's Energy and Mines Minister, talking about uh, what we've learned. And as I mentioned, a whole bunch of it not very good on the BC Hydro front. Uh, apparently, according to the ZAP report, we bought way too much energy, the wrong kind of energy, at too high a price. And the impact to taxpayers is in the range of $16 billion. So major changes coming to BC Hydro. That's it for Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests today, Rob Shaw from the Vancouver Sun, Richard Zussman from Global BC, and Shannon Waters from BC Today. And as you heard just there, BC's Energy Minister, Michelle Mungal. We'll see you again here on Inside Politics on NL next Friday. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.